Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. You join us this evening on Hiraith as we do our Senna's 21 Roundup pod. Uh, joining me this evening is Richard Mine. Hello, Richard. Hey, Matt. And Kerry Davis. Hi, Kerry. Good evening, gents. So having listened by hopefully now, if you haven't already listened, listened to all our pre-recorded pods on the Senna 21 elections, uh, we'll probably take them in order, the Labour Party first. Uh, Rich, what did you make of uh, that pod? And with a bit of hindsight, what do you make about Labour's chances in next year's election now? I think to start with, it was our first of this series of podcasts. I think we recorded about six weeks ago. And in that six weeks, my word, the world has changed. The fundamentals, though, I don't think have changed that much. All of the guests that we had on there, uh, Tonya, Anna and uh, Mike, they all felt reasonably confident, although Mike was not quite as much as Anna and uh, Tonya, about Labour's chances in the next election. And what's happened since is that we've actually seen, in many regards, that position become more more realistic. The performance of the Welsh Labour government has improved an awful lot over the course of dealing with the coronavirus epidemic. Keir Starmer, at the other end of the M4, has continued to improve the standing of uh, Labour in England uh, to a considerable degree. That's where, if they're going to have a future Labour uh, UK government, they have to win in England. And Starmer has started doing all the right things to start win back voters in England. He's also dealt with a lot of the thorny issues He's managed to oust the last of the Corbyn shadow cabinet out of his own shadow cabinets. He's willing to do what it takes to reshape the Labour Party in his own image. And you can't get away from the fact that whatever happens in Wales next year will be largely influenced by Keir Starmer. And I think to all intents and purposes, he's been doing a good job. As Rich said, it, the world has changed. I think uh, the Labour kind of approach in Wales to handling Covid has given them a really firm base, which I don't think was there six weeks ago. Mark Drakeford, love of cheese, has really put him on a, a new kind of position in the Welsh public. Now, the handling by Welsh Labour government, I think they've been seen as a safe pair of hands, which I don't think it was quite there six weeks ago. What our guests said, they wanted to campaign on the Labour record. And I don't think at the time I remember thinking that that wasn't a record I'd really want to campaign on because I think the 20-year record of Labour in Wales is mixed. When we come on to the policies for next year's uh, election, handling of COVID is going to be up there. And I think Labour currently, despite a few kind of misses, generally in a pretty strong position coming off handling of COVID. Yeah, I think I think I agree. I mean, it's the six month period up until when we recorded had been a difficult six months. You'd had the election result in December, the leadership election, which is always going to cause a lot of internal fighting. But I think things are looking up a bit. The Roger Scully poll had Labour on 25 seats, which is would be a loss, but is certainly better than the previous. And then there was the Centre for Wales poll as well, which had Labour still on 29. It would be nice, but perhaps a tad optimistic. In the polling, in looking at polling, it's certainly on the up. And even in England as well, after the Dominic Cummings affair, there's certainly been an uptick, which as you say, will have an effect. But mostly that's been a, a drop in conservative support. And I think that that has also been seen in, in Wales as a consequence of the Cummings furor. A lot will depend for Labour on the nature of the campaign and whether we are able to door knock or whether it's an air war. We will have a better election in an air war than some of the other parties, some of the small parties, uh, those without a big UK media presence. But the Conservatives will always be able to spend more money than us. I think, I think an interesting way of looking at it is when we started these pods, we were a year out. Thinking about it, who would have liked to have had the election this year if they could have? And I think when we started, I would have said the Conservatives would have taken the option of having an election. Six weeks later, I think uh, 
the Conservatives are less likely to ask for that election and Labour are far more likely. You know, we're talking a year out, but that six weeks have really shown a big change. What do you think's been behind that, Kerry? You know, at its very core, for me, politics is about making good decisions. And I think we've seen Westminster regularly make poor decisions or decisions which are easily criticised. And in Wales, the decision not to do a lot, that has uh, really put Welsh Labour government in a strong position at the moment. I, I was thinking a little bit about what the Labour Party has to do to do well. What is the test that the Labour Party has to pass with the electorate in order to do well in an election? And I think that's a different test to the Conservative Party. I think the test for Labour is competence. People, you know, the, the narratives in the background are always, are Labour going to get in charge of things and is it going to go wrong economically or whatever? Because that's, you know, that's a, an existing narrative that people understand and largely buy into. And I think Keir Starmer's election has done a lot to address that question of competence because he looks and talks like a competent man and the way that he's conducted himself so far has been visibly very competent in the way he's managed the PLP but also largely speaking he's handled the opposition in Westminster to the UK government's coronavirus actions competently and I think so he passes that competence test now going back to the very start of the outbreak in that very critical early few weeks it looked like the Welsh Labour government were going to fail that competence test because there was all the stuff with the stereophonics gigs there was the dithering frankly about um, the Wales-Scotland Rugby International. And then there was also the kind of general sensation that at the very start that they were waiting for Westminster to start and they would follow. But within a few weeks, that had changed. And I think you started to see Mark Drakeford quiet but competent. And you're seeing the same at the other end of the M4. And I think that's a winning, I think that's a winning position for the Labour Party. I think that the test for the Conservative Party is different. Uh, the test for them is trust. Do people trust the Conservative Party to act in their best interests? And I think we generally found that a large proportion of the population felt that Boris Johnson, believe it or not, was go they trusted him to act in their interests and, you know, their interests being aligned with Brexit and getting things done and moving on. But their actions, certainly since the Cummings affair, has been a slow and gradual erosion of trust. And no matter how many billions Rishi Sunak throws at the UK economy, at its core, you can see those tiny cracks in public trust, and they're just widening and widening. And that's the story of every Conservative administration of the 21st and 20th century over time. So I think Labour activists, I think they should probably feel quite confident as things stand. And I think we should say this just once, we are still nine months away from or 10 months away from the election. And so I think if you if you were to take a snapshot right now, all of the Labour family, the wider Labour family should feel reasonably comfortable about being the largest party at Senate 2021, apart from one thing, which we'll come on to later, which may or not be connected with four wheels and tarmac in certain corners of Wales. I think I agree with you in regards to the sort of the, you know, finding that nexus between competency and trust. Uh, I think Mark Drake has done really well at that. And I think that has really helped Welsh Labour in its polling and just the overall impression of, yeah, how competent Welsh, well, the Welsh government are. Uh, you hear a lot more about people just talking about Welsh Gov now and referring to Welsh Gov decisions and that decision, not quite at the beginning, but not too far from it, to go our own way to have some clear red water to coin a phrase was was a good one and it certainly helped mark in terms of it being a successful night 
it's always going to be really difficult for a party that's been in government for as long as Labour has. And that incumbency factor when things are so in flux is always going to be a really difficult one. So to mark out what is a successful night for Labour is always going to be really tricky. Because if you ask most people who are in the know about what is a good night for Welsh Labour, 28 seats would be incredible for Welsh Labour. But there's always the ability of others to spin that narrative of, look, they're going backwards, look, they've lost seats. It's going to be really difficult for Welsh Labour to, to, even if they're the largest party, even if they're in a position where they can put the government together, it's always going to be really difficult for them to say we've won. I, I, th- I think that's, that's a win for Welsh Labour to be in that position to form the next government. People can criticise that, but they'll be in a position then to input their manifesto promises and commitments, such as a new M4 or something along those lines. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> It's just going to be difficult. And there'll be, there will be people both outside and inside the party who will view any step back in terms of seats or votes as, uh, as this being a, an error on Mark's part or a failure of certain other parts of the party, I'm sure. But I, I agree with you. Anything that we are nearly the same or the same as we have now is, is, has to be viewed as a successful election. Can I, ju- can I just say that I think one, you know, uh, this, is, this is niche uh, and this isn't des- necessarily party political, but I think it is important to note from a Welsh government point of view, the Welsh government's learning curve over the last few months uh, cannot be understated, not just in terms of functioning mechanics of government, but I think what they have learned, and it's the key thing that they've learned, is that they need to communicate with the public better. And I think that that distance that could easily have been perceived by a, a suboptimal communication strategy between the Welsh government, or, or, or not even that, just an emotional connection between the wider Welsh public and the Welsh government, there was a gap there that I think they've managed to address. Now, part of that is simply by having worked very hard to improve their comms. And we've seen that you know, very visibly. If you just compare the... Um, Welsh Government press conferences from the start of the coronavirus epidemic to now, you can see that learning curve, not only in the way that they present themselves, but the fact that they're integrating small Welsh local news organisations in their communications as much as um, the UK-wide national media. Um, and, and that is amazing. That's really transformed it. But what we've discovered, and you alluded to the the cheese um, clips of Mark Drakeford. Now, I'm actually... I probably, with my slightly cynical hat on, I probably side with Darren Hill on this in that I think that that's kind of like, that's like Twitter fodder. You know, that's kind of fun, cosy, Welsh Twitter. Oh, haven't we got a slightly unassuming, geeky first minister who quite likes fermented cow milk or whatever the hell? I don't actually, I have no idea how you make cheese. I don't know. But he. But that, really, that's how you make it. It's gone off. And, and actually, he's also wrong because we all know that the best cheese in Wales is cow Um Sorry, um, you're just going to have to live with that. But we've just lost a huge amount of our, you know, cheese producing audience yeah. here. <laughs> You've also ruined my wrap up question to you, bro. <laughs> oh, really? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but I, I think that what's those things might be cheese like that. The the regular reliable rhythm, the kind of clips of Mark Drakeford, you know, looking like a slightly quiet granddad in the corner of a room while people come up and ask questions it's amazing just how a slightly different prism can shine a different light on it because people quite like that in these times and when before the coronavirus pandemic that kind of image of being slightly distant slightly aloof arguably intellectually 
and not really emotionally connecting with the people of Wales. I think through the prism before coronavirus, those were disadvantages for the Welsh government. But I think actually now we've seen more of him as an individual. He's competent, slightly geeky, slightly cheesy. And I think people actually quite like that. And he's made the right decisions. You, you, you know, that's actually core of it. For most of this pandemic, he's made the right decisions. People like that. They feel, and as a consequence, they feel a better emotional connection with the Welsh Government. I know we're spending a long time on Labour, but Mark is going to be in one of the hardest fought um, seat battles next year with Neil McAvoy. And the changes to his personal approach and the personality he's brought forward from the COVID, whether it's the, the Twitter memes or GIFs, it's given him a, a position uh, a likability which is going to be I think will be really important in the seat he's going to sit in next year because that could be a really horrible part of campaigning in Welsh politics next year I don't think he's at that much of a danger though in Cardworth I'm going to eat my hat now I? McAvoy relied on getting his own sort of personal vote plus the plied vote to get close to him and I think uh, my belief is that Rodri Aboin is standing as the plied candidate in Cardworth so he'll be a good solid campaign, ca- candidate for their base in Cardiff West, I'm sure they'll do pretty well. But I, I can't see uh, McAvoy being able to drag all the Plaid support with him or vice versa. I was thinking uh, more, I was thinking bringing more him along, over. along the lines that if it gets acrimonious and bitter, that can you know, affect the wider campaign, really. And whether he's got a realistic challenger or not, a media focus and spotlight will be on that particular seat. I think also, Harry mentioned this on our podcast about policies with regard to Leanne's victory in La Ronda. There is no getting away from the fact that the more people know about a candidate, generally speaking, that means that they do better in the election because people recognise the name. Just name recognition is a massive thing. And, you know, for all of his life, you know, long years serving in the Assembly, no one really knew who Mark Drakeford was in 2016 outside of political circles I think they will now and as as a result I just don't see any way that he's going to lose that constituency. We started talking about the incumbent party in Wales the one who wasn't doing so well in the polling should we talk about the party that was doing really well in the polling six weeks ago and isn't so much now how do you think they will look at this six-week period this two-month period around coronavirus and how it's affected their uh, ratings in Wales do you think they look at it as a bit of a missed opportunity or do you think there's still ground for them to build upon. Um, I think the Conservatives across the UK have had a really tough time of it with COVID, um, and rightly so. That's reflected in kind of opinion polls and things like that. But in Wales, I, I, they, I think they've been generally under the radar. Unless you're familiar with Andrew R.T. Davis, social media, I, I don't get to see a lot of anyone else putting their head above the parapet or making too many outlandish statements. I think they're just reflecting on what they achieved in the December general election, which, let's be honest, it's, it was a hugely successful night in Wales for the Conservatives, and they're, they're there for another five years. The economic side of the things that uh, the Chancellor is addressing with some praise from a lot of quarters as well. And I think that's going to be one of the big issues going into the next election of where the economy is. And if it is, as many expect, to be in the doldrums, how they're going to uh, address that and reflect that. But in areas such as 
the the furlough scheme and the support for businesses i've actually been impressed with what westminster have done for that i think the furloughing the 80 percent support you know i know some people have missed out and their groups that have felt that they haven't got the support they wanted but an awful they did an awful lot more than what i was expecting a conservative government to do i think they may well reflect and build on that as we approach next year there's certainly an aspect of that that i agree with kerry i think there's lots of stuff that things like simon hart etc have been saying the uk government further scheme etc has allowed wales to have this very cautious approach to lockdown i don't know that's necessarily true but at least they can try and create that argument it's, it's i think it comes back to what rich was saying earlier about competence versus trust i think everyone sort of thinks the conservatives will be vaguely competent it's just whether they trust them to have their best interests at heart and I think Rishi Sunak has done a good job of of doing that for Conservatives all across the UK. But I think they will look at that strong position they had six weeks ago and wonder what if Dominic Cummings hadn't decided to test his eyesight out on a trip to Durham. I think they've it's just, in Wales anyway, been a quite significant drop back in support. And I think they'd still be happy if you look at what the Scully polling has them on, which I think is 19, yeah, 19 seats. What Roger did say is the seats they'd take were the Vale of Glamorgan, the Vale of Cloyd, Gower, Wrexham and Cardiff North. I mean, I can't see them taking Cardiff North or Gower, really. They may be successful in places like the Vale of Glamorgan and the Vale of Cloyd and possibly Wrexham. Uh, I, I, I can't see them taking all those seats. So they'd certainly be a best case scenario. I think they have a better night than they had in 2016, but I don't think they have quite as good a night as they had. They, they, were, they were planning to have a few months ago. No, it's just because, you know, if we place it in the context of our pod, and I, th- I quite enjoyed the Conservative pod, it was, uh, we brought on some some of the voices outside the normal bubble, James, Emma, and I, I was really, I can see if those voices come a little bit more to the fore in the Conservatives, and I, I think we were in quite a rural kind of approach with the people we had on that pod, with Amanda as well. I think though that part of Wales, which... Uh, that they're representing and coming from i think their their voices will still give the conservatives quite a strong position come next year but one of the things i think we might touch on when we talk about policies is again and i was trying to push it in a lot of the the pods when we reviewed them is brexit if brexit doesn't go as the conservatives and the brexiteers have promised come the 31st of december that is going to be i think a really big issue in the election next may across the uk so so i I think brexit will still have we'll pick this up i'm sure but i think brexit one way or another either lauding its success or decrying its failure will be a big policy position next year and our our kind of rural guests could be well at the forefront of some of the the outcomes from uh, brexit if one starts making a comment and has to preface it with an apology, um, uh, I think you probably know that um, you're about to say something you probably shouldn't, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think what, what our, our podcast with the Welsh Conservatives showed, and I think it is a truth, that there are an awful lot of talented people in the ranks of the Welsh Conservatives who want to stand to be in the Senate, particularly, you know, good grasp of the detail. I was particularly impressed by Amanda getting really stuck into the education policy and the effect of the new curriculum in Wales. And you can see that there's a really consistent, well thought through uh, approach there. And 
I think that there's an awful lot of political talent in the Welsh Conservative groups. But I think we, we have to be quite clear um, about something in Wales that is not true in Scotland, is that there really is no such thing as the Welsh Conservatives. They don't just not exist in terms of party structure. You know, it's not like Paul Davis has any kind of control over the party in Wales. But they don't have any independence in terms of their thought structure either. I mean, they are just part of the hierarchy. They're an extension or an abutment to the Westminster Party's leadership on almost every policy area. In Scotland, that is different. You know, the, the Conservatives in Scotland are still Conservatives. They're still Unionists, very much so. But they think about Scotland in a slightly different context to the rest of the UK, although they also recognise that overarching UK context. The party in Wales hitched its wagon to Boris Johnson in 2019 and, you know, for better or for worse, briefly looked like for better, then it turned out to be a lot for worse, to the same with Theresa May in 2017. And there is a deep problem with that, is that you basically saying that your electoral chances are dependent on the competence of somebody with whom you have no working relationship on a day-to-day -day basis whatsoever, and quite frankly, probably doesn't even know who you are for the most part. And that is a massive problem. If you're going into an election, as they will next year, they might roll Boris down the M4, they might get people, what are they going to do? Send Pretty Patel down to people in Wales to say what a great job that they're doing in the Home Office. I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. And their response to coronavirus has in some ways been good. And I think you're right to, Kerry, I think absolutely right to say that Rishi Sunak did a good job in many regards. But I also have to sort of comment that any central bank or any finance minister or any chancellor of the exchequer for any country would do something similar. When it comes to next year's election, the policy platform of the Welsh Conservatives is essentially, we'll do what Boris tells us to. And we might tweak education policy. We might tweak what Welsh housing policy. And David Melding has done loads of really good work on a conservative approach to housing in Wales. But essentially then, all of the big stuff is going to be driven by what happens in Westminster. And we've started to see some signs of this, that transport policy in Wales, I think we all know, is going to be, uh, you know, M4, A55. The UK government will put up some borrowing power or some finance to be able to fund it and that will be the pitch but they're never going to challenge the direction of Boris Johnson's government in Westminster in the way that the Scottish Conservatives have and we saw Ruth Davidson do that on a regular basis when Theresa May was in charge and that is a problem and I think if we look at the long-term problems for the Welsh Conservatives in the Senate as long as they continue to be a pro-devolution party, which is by no means guaranteed, but for as long as they stay hitched to the, uh, the party in uh, London, they are never going to be able to carve out enough credibility to, become, to win an election and become a government. I just don't see it happening. And, that, and like I say, I say that, that's not as criticism of the talent, because there's some very talented people in the Welsh Conservative group and aspiring to be in that group. But unless you have leadership at a Welsh level that is distinct positive that you can actually sell to the people of Wales I just don't think you can win here um, and you know there are some of those criticisms you could apply to the Labour Party before I sound unfair but the what the Labour Party is far more distinct as a, UK, a British party operating in Wales than the Conservative Party is. Yeah I completely agree I think you'd have devolution in name only basically if you had a Welsh Conservative government 
And I think the a question a lot of people will be asking in the, the next election is, is who is better between Paul Davis and Mark Drakeford? I think the one question you should probably ask yourself if you're concerned about the future of devolution is who's better, Paul Davis or Rodri Morgan? Who is, a, who is able, when faced with a UK government of the same political party colour, and able to carve out a distinct Welsh identity to say that we will have clear red water from UK Labour government. All Paul Davis talks about is slate curtains and the vicks on the dragon's nostrils. There's no, from what I can see, and we got into it a little bit in the Conservative analysis pod, I don't know what a Conservative version of devolution in Wales looks like. It looks to me like following England's policy 100%. I, I, I can't see that changing if they got into power. I, I just cannot see anything being different to England. You know, it'll be another case of for Wales see England if the Conservatives get in. You're absolutely right, Matt. And this is what I find absolutely baffling. If I was a, a strategist in the, the Welsh Conservative team in Cardiff Bay, is that you have basically spent the last six weeks or 10 weeks saying that Wales should follow England without question, despite the fact that everybody with eyes and ears and a brain can see that England's response to coronavirus has been terrible. And then you've been just saying, oh, we should end the cruel rule of Welsh difference, you know, and, you know, Wales should follow, open up like it glorious England is doing, and we should all get coronavirus in the pub. Exactly as you say, Matt, you get, say, for example, in the, in the scenario that we get a Conservative-led administration in Cardiff Bay, you just can't imagine... You know, if Boris wants something to be done in Wales, oh, let's um, let's have another um, LPG pipeline across Wales. You know, we just think, oh, Paul Davis is just going to say, oh, yeah, of course. yes, boss, of course. We'd have to turn, you know, a third of Unis Morn into a car park for lorries that now have to go through customs before going to Ireland. You just think, Paul Davis isn't going to say, no, no, Boris, no. The power imbalance is so great between them that you just can't see them standing up. And how can you say that you're going to stand up for a country and be a first minister of a country if you're not even going to stand up to your own party leader? I just, I, I think that's, that's a structural problem for the Conservatives. And in all fairness, we should, you know, we should say that Andrew R.T. Davis tried to fix this um, by creating a Welsh Conservative Party, or at least a leader of the Welsh Conservative Party, and Paul Davis, I believe, feels the same way. And, and kind of in the background, you've always got this ticking clock. But it certainly feels like it at the moment. The Conservative Party in Wales, which is what it is, it's not the Welsh Conservative Party, but the Conservative Party in Wales, has started to move towards being an anti-devolutionary party. And, you know, can you imagine, uh, I think we talked about this in one of the earlier pods, can you imagine Paul Davis being voted as leader now, standing up against some of the, you know, more overtly British nationalist parts, you know, a member of a more overtly British nationalist part of the Conservative Party, that person would win with the membership in Wales, hands down. The Conservative Party in Wales under that kind of leadership would be, you know, seeking to minimise the ability of the Senate, potentially um, looking towards you were sort of metro mayor type model for the whole of Wales, and you'd have essentially a mayor of Wales. And you can see that being an evolution of Conservative thought it's kind of sad. I, I just feel like it's a missed opportunity for the Welsh Conservatives. If they were more thoughtful and more confident in their own ability in Wales, you can, you can see that it would be elect, more electorally successful for them. But as it, as it is, they're essentially just going to have to rely on trying to increase the turnout of the kind of people that vote Conservative anyway. I don't see them winning new voters in Wales. I think there were near 900,000 votes in the December election. 
And I think that's what they'll be looking for. I, I don't think they're looking to, you know, I think what you just described is something that we might want from the Conservative Party in Wales. But I don't think there's a huge desire amongst the Conservative voters who voted in those numbers last December for that generally. And I think that's what that party would be looking for, is to try and retain as many of those 850, 900,000 voters that voted for them in December to vote for them next May. And then you add in whatever the Brexit voters were. Um, but I think between the Brexit party and Conservative party, they polled higher than Labour in the December election. And I think that's what, you know, the Conservatives don't have to do an awful lot other than to try and attract those votes to stay with them. That, that's not enough to win them the election and allow them to form a government. We are talking about a party which knows what it's doing. And I think they know exactly what they're going to be looking for next year and they will go for that. And if it can firmly put them in a, a very strong opposition position, I think that will be what they'll be aiming for. I, I don't think in our kind of roundup here, we'd agree that they, they're going to go into government or be the largest party to have an opportunity to form that government. Totally agree with you. I think that's what the plan is. But this is what I think is the problem for them, because as we touched on earlier, if the economy is really struggling, if there is a negative consequence from whatever the termination of the Brexit transition period is, if the coronavirus response with hindsight in under um, the Johnson administration turns out to be a bad thing, because they haven't built uh, a slate curtain, um, a blue haze, <laughs> between them and uh, um, Boris Johnson, they're completely at the mercy of the political headwinds. And so those voters, which were there at peak Boris Johnson, might also depart them if we start to see trough Boris Johnson. Don't and disagree also, at all. And also, of course, there's also, you know, we, we'll talk about this later, but there's also minor parties that might split their vote, uh, which they're obviously trying to court in some to, to some degree, but um, we'll cross that bridge a little bit later on. Uh, shall we talk about Ply Cymru? Yeah, we shall. Now, now you know that it's it's kind of like the Harry Potter part of the show. Now we don't mention the name. We try and talk about our episode with he who must not be named and Carrie Harper without saying his name. Okay, I understand. Rich, how do you think that Ply will be feeling now? looking at next year's election? Uh, I'll be entirely honest with you. I think it's the biggest unknown of all the parties that we've talked about. I think the performance of Ply Cymru is the one about which I have the least kind of confidence in how they are right now, because they have a huge number of assets. You know, they still have, you know, a lot of talent in among their group. They have a really solid leader in Adam Price, who um, is coming to his first major electoral test. And I think People have been a lot of people within the party have been waiting for this moment for a long time. Um, he's certainly a very good leader in uh, the sort of debate kind of scenario. So I think in one of our previous episodes we talked about him being on a stage alongside Paul Davis and Mark Drakeford, and you can see just by his style he would be very good and probably very successful in that situation. Um, there's still a number of other really strong assets, like um, Leanne Wood in the Tronda continues to be incredibly popular in the Tronda. There are some emerging talents who are quite considerable. We had Carrie on, and I think Carrie w blew us all away with her, her talent and you know, potential for uh, Wrexham. Uh, uh, she and a number of others are sort of waiting in the wings for their opportunity, if they can get it, 
Some of the structural problems, though, still remain for Ply Cymru. You mentioned visibility is a big problem, even in Welsh election. Um, they have not had the easiest last few months um, for you know whether the public have paid attention to it, but there are problems that there have been problems with a number of individuals associated with Ply Cymru, uh, both in Westminster and here in Wales. And I think also the party has changed a lot from the last Welsh Assembly election. Now, how much, how many lessons we can draw from that last Assembly election, because it was literally a political lifetime ago, I don't know. But they came close in a number of constituencies, which they won't come close in this time round. And the question is whether they can make gains elsewhere to kind of make it a successful night, because they will be compared directly with their performance in 2016. You would expect um, them to retain uh, David L's seat on when he was elected, but I can't remember which that is. That uh, Doivor. Doivor. Is it Mabon Abguinvor who's standing? Yeah, Mabon's got that candidacy. Uh, you'd expect him to win that because um, that's a long-standing plied seat. You know, uh, Nigel Copner has left the party, so you can't see a close race in Blaine Gwent. Um, I think many of the party members will be pleased that Neil McAvoy has left the party in Cardiff West, but that means almost inevitably that they're not going to come anywhere near close to unseating Mark Drakeford as they did in 2016. So then there's a lot of pressure on the potentially winnable seats um, and, you know, the general performance on the lists. I, I think it's very difficult to tell. I, I, I don't think much has changed for them. And they haven't, despite the huge growth in support for independence in Wales, I know you, you'll know this better than me, Matt, from the outside, it looks like a lot of those people who are joining the independence movement are joining from a Labour Party or a non-aligned position or, you know, maybe other parties. I'm not sure whether that necessarily indicates that there's been a huge growth of support for Ply Cymru. Uh, and I think that that kind of just reinforces this idea that there is a certain degree of lock-in and lock-out for Ply Cymru in different parts of Wales. And breaking that pattern still proves to be very difficult for Ply Cymru. Yeah, I think you're right. If you look at the stuff that Jack Lana did recently on sort of constitutional preferences within parties, I think a lot of the additional support that independence has found within Wales has come from the Labour Party and the Liberals as well, to a lesser extent, probably due to frustration with how we're being governed from Westminster more than anything else. And I think you're right. Although those headline figures of sort of just before the general election, it had something around 40%. If that 40%, if, if that meant that Wales being independent would also mean us being part of the EU, which obviously appealed a lot to Labour, a lot of Labour supporters and a lot of Lib Dem supporters. But uh, yeah, I've, you've never seen Plaid get that, that high uh, as a party. I think, although they are most synonymous with the policy of independence within Wales, I don't think that, I think people are able to detach that policy from Plaid. Whether it's possible without Plaid is a, is a different question, but I think they're able to, the voters are able to separate those two issues uh, and say, well, I'd be quite happy to back independence, but I'm not going to vote for Plaid Cymru. And I think that's going to be a really difficult hurdle for Plaid to overcome if they ever want to actually achieve that goal in the end, or you even just to be the party of government. You know, I quite like a thought experiment. Go on. I have a theory that if the Labour Party in an alternate universe came out in support of Welsh and presumably Scottish independence, I have a theory that that would take away two thirds of Ply Cymru support and they would switch to Labour. Independence from 
government from Westminster is such a key issue for so many people of the left in Wales that I think that pushes a lot of people into Ply Cymru's um, column that if the Labour Party was also in the same constitutional waters, I think people would be more comfortable voting Labour, certainly here in the southeast where I live. When I first moved back to Wales about five years ago now, a lot of the people that I knew who were Plaid Cymru members weren't even that first on independence. They were left wing, but didn't like Labour. Whether that was they didn't like the record of Labour in government in the UK, they didn't like the record of Labour in the government in Wales, just didn't feel aligned to, to, to Labour Party politics. I think that's changed greatly now that people who are implied of it are implied for a reason, and that reason is independence and uh, their version of socialism within an independent Wales. You, you may well be right that a lot of people would have, in this alternative universe, a lot of these people would have gone straight to Labour anyway. But even though those figures in Labour show there are lots more people in favour of independence, much higher than you would have thought necessarily, there's still a lot of people who are against independence, against devolution, mostly against independence in the Labour Party. So I don't think the Labour Party would be in as strong a position as it is if it embraced uh, independence. I mean, this is the position, well, and again, we'll get into this a bit later, this is the position that Scottish Labour have found themselves in, sort of trapped between that rock and a hard place where they, they, they aren't the strongest unionist voice in Scotland and they aren't the most nationalist. I think that's interesting. I, I, I almost get the feeling that some kind of innovative podcast show should do some kind of series of podcasts exploring whether socialism and uh, independence for Celtic countries can go hand in hand. What do you think of that idea, guys? Maybe. Well, maybe we'll look into that in a few next few weeks. Um, it's an interesting thought experiment. It's just... Well, the, it's the whether why... Labour, whether it late work, you know, you've got to ask two questions, I think, if you've got that thought experiment. If Labour were a, a, a party supporting independence, would they have been, would Wales be independent already because they've been the predominant party for so long? Uh, and two, would they have ever got to the stage where they are the predominant party because a lot of people wouldn't have necessarily wanted independence in the first place? I think we, and we will probably talk about this later, but I was struck by reading a tweet by one of our former guests earlier today, who was, again, mulling on the fact that the continuing polling seems to suggest that Scotland is edging closer and closer to another indie ref, which it would be on, looks like it's on course to win. In light of that position where you end up with a, you know, an independent Scotland, United Ireland, or at least a not governed by the UK Ireland, whether it's fully united or not, I don't know. But if you end up in the Serbia and Montenegro-esque Wales and England, uh, with an England that seems to be, and I think, you know, if you look historically over the last hundred years or so, is almost perpetually run by the Conservative Party. And then you have a small little Wales, which is perpetually run by the Labour Party. And then you also find out in that circumstance that the power imbalance is such that the Conservative Party in London can do whatever it wants, because there just isn't the strength of institutional defence there. This tweeting guest, former guest of ours, suggested that they might be willing to entertain the independence column. And I think, you know, much as that, that, that is a hypothetical built upon a mountain of hypotheticals, but it's not outside the realms of possibility. Um, and I think that that's what, partly what's seeing the growth in the independence movement in Wales is just within, I think, crucially within the Labour Party, more people thinking, oh, but this seems like potentially like a trap if the others go. I think that's interesting. I just think it's really interesting. And, and, and actually, I think in, if that were to happen, I think that that would be the way things are right now. I think that would be really, really interesting. 
So why don't you think the Plaid are able to take those people from Labour? We covered this in our Plaid Cymru analysis, Bob, but there are structural things. There's Plaid is a smaller party because it's Wales only. Therefore, the, tal- the pool of talent is much smaller. When you find somebody in Plaid Cymru who is incredibly talented and hardworking and finds themselves in the right place at the right time, they can win. Uh, and we saw this with Leanne in the Ronda. And I think that, you know, based on the conversation alone that we had, I think Carrie might be one to watch in Wrexham. But that pool of talent is small and it's spread among the Plaid Cymru group in the Senedd, um, but also in Westminster as well. The other element is, and it's an unavoidable element because we can all see a map when you know we look at the map of election seats won by Plaid Cymru. It is the old long-standing pattern of Welsh-speaking Wales has been the hinterland for Plaid Cymru. And after decades and decades and decades of people pigeonholing Plaid Cymru for political purposes successfully as the Welsh-speaking Welsh Nationalist Party, that takes a long time to work out of uh, body politic. Those two things are quite, they would be big enough hurdles for any party. And then you have uh, the Labour Party in Wales, which is frankly very, very good at what it does. It turns people out to win elections over and over again. And it just has a phenomenal electoral machine in Wales. And it doesn't have the mismanagement of devolution cost it so badly in Scotland. So these things don't happen in a vacuum. If Labour had mishandled devolution in Wales in the same way that Labour mishandled devolution in Scotland, Plaid Cymru, I think, inevitably would be doing better. They would probably have more valley seats in particular, some of those more strongly Welsh-identifying valley seats. But they haven't. And I think unless something happens to the Labour Party to weaken it, then I think it will continue to be very hard for Plaid Cymru to win in the valleys. For Plaid... My bellwether kind of Plaid seat is Merthyr. And, you know, if Plaid aren't going to build up their base in Merthyr, um, a, an important seat in Wales for me, um, both figuratively and it, its historical importance. But last December, Plaid, I think, came fourth, uh, maybe third. But the Conservatives are coming second in a seat like Merthyr. You both mentioned as well the indie position. Scotland will be an indie ref in all but name and I think that should dominate the the campaigns across the UK because that is fundamental constitutional issues which will affect us all so will that have an impact will Plaid pick up those indie voters the federalism side of things could the continued trickle down of ever bigger policy areas important policy areas keep people who might go indie within the kind of ranks of uh, the mainstream parties. I, I don't know where Plaid are going to be. I, don't, I think they need to break through that 99 number of votes ceiling, and I just don't think they're there yet. I mean, the party that everyone always compares Plaid to is the SNP, because they're on the same island as us. But for me, the party that Plaid should look to emulate most recently is Sinn Féin. They had such a radical manifesto for the Irish election. <laughs> Uh, we're not mentioning his name. We had, it's such a radical manifesto for, for the Irish election. They, ta- they tackled real issues like the economy and housing and health. I think that's what Plaid need to do in a, in a post-COVID world, if they're to ever break through, is to really just uh, go for broke. But I, I just can't see them doing it. I don't know what the, um, the economic term would be for this, but the, the spectrum of potential outcomes from Plaid Cymru is very high if they did do 
something that really grasped the feeling of the nation um, in the same way that Sinn Féin did in the last Irish election, or it could be really low if they find themselves getting squeezed out by a Boris Johnson versus Keir Starmer-led campaign in Wales, which broadly goes down the same kind of lines that we see every Westminster election. And and I think for that reason, I think it's very difficult to tell what Plaid Cymru will do next year. Kerry, what are your thoughts on some of the other parties we interviewed and some of the ones we didn't about you know, sort of smaller parties? Do you think there'll be any surprises? The Lib Dems uh, call for a successful night of I think it was five seats is uh, very ambitious, shall we say, you know, with an awful lot of uh, things to happen. But I think one of the standout performers in the COVID pandemic area is Kirsty Williams. So... I think that, that's a basis for them to build on. I, I can't see the kind of up to five seats, which was suggested, would be in a realistic position for the Lib Dems. Uh, we interviewed the Greens again. I was quite surprised that climate change, the environment, didn't feature in the pods as much as what it could have done, whether that's because uh, COVID has kind of become that new all-encompassing policy. But if we think that we're under a climate emergency under virtually every form of government, but the, the action from those climate emergency declarations has been pretty poor. So can the Greens build on that? I certainly hope so. But in terms of everything else we've talked about and the number of parties and the, the issues in Wales, it's going to be very difficult. And of course, we had Catchin from the Communist Party, who I thought put a very clear and good kind of approach to what they were looking for in the election. But I can't see that type of party really gaining much more of a foothold. I mean, there's a few we, we asked to speak to but couldn't for one reason or another. I'm not sure where they will feature. The Brexit party, obviously, what they turn into, whatever they become, will that same kind of, let's call it an anti-establishment, uh, a kind of against something vote, will that manifest itself in numbers what it did last time? I, I'm not sure that it will. Uh, I think the votes they had will go back to more traditional parties be that Labour, be that Conservatives. Trying to um, sidestep the occasionally thorny issue of party policies, what did strike me is when we were speaking to Linnet, you know, you think about talent, just political talent, no matter the, the party that Pearson represents, you think there are a lot of talented people in the Liberal Democrat Party. It would be nice to have some of that talent in the Senate, because quite frankly, we need the best Senate that we can get, because there's going to be a lot of challenges in the future. Um, so it was really nice to have um, a number of different voices. I think electorally, you, the analysis Kerry just presented is that it's, it is very brutally difficult in Wales, even with our semi-proportional system, for a smaller party to find a gap in between Labour, Conservatives and Ply Cymru. The exception to that rule over the recent history has been the kind of uh, fringe rights how would you how would you describe it? Not quite libertarian, but kind of on that spectrum of things. Uh, we saw this with obviously with UKIP initially, and then with the Brexit Party, and to a certain a lesser degree the uh, abolish the Welsh Assembly Party. And I think we should expect to see support for those parties not disappear entirely, but whether it meets the threshold test to be able to return a couple of seats on the regions. You can see that there's energy there among those people. But I think, and I think this also is the deciding factor for the other small parties, there's energy in the campaigns, but is there enthusiasm among the public? Simply if you look at uh, things through the prism of coronavirus, 
um, or you think look at things through the uh, economic challenges which we're all about to feel I think that people will err away from the smaller parties because they won't feel confident that in delivery and that goes as much for those on the the right and far right as it is on those on the left and the uh, far left as it was in the case of Catherine but I just I, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, and I'm 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 sad about that in some in some ways but I think that's the reality of the situation how about you Matt yeah I completely agree I think if anyone's going to break through on the list, it is probably going to be one of those right of centre parties, party like Abolish or like whatever the Brexit party are called. I think that's much more likely. I think there's a bit of polling to back it up, but I, I can't see, unfortunately, anyone else being successful from that semi-proportional system. Maybe the Liberals will pick up one, like, like we said in the analysis. If there is a Brexit resentment, perhaps they will get a few. Yeah, I think that analysis is, is pretty spot on. I think, you know, recognising, as we did in the analysis, the um, the value of a party machinery. And the one thing we can't get, I think you alluded to it earlier, Matt, the Labour Party in Wales is something to behold. If, if we could put that party machinery to good, we'd have no problems in the country at all. But uh, and also... <laughs> careful now. I, Very good. Good. You know right? <laughs> I thought you'd like that. But the Conservatives as well, what they can bring to on the ground and the money they can bring to campaigns, um, I don't think the other parties can compete with that. It, it's really, really hard. Even the Lib Dems, I don't think they're anywhere near the force they were, shall we say, when the first few elections in the, the Senate. You know, they I think they've been in government several times, coalition. Kirsty's obviously there now. So they are a successful political force in Wales. I don't think their their structure is going to be as strong as what the, the the three largest parties in Wales are and what they can bring to the on the ground campaigning. Really try very hard actually to try and find something really positive that we can say for the smaller parties and actually I think that there is a scenario in which things do get a lot better. Um I think what we have discovered recently in particular is that the idea of Wales as a separate polity to that of England and Wales or the UK is growing and I think one of the reasons why we have this deeply entrenched two-party system or three-party system in, in uh, if you include I Cymru is that we have a, essentially a branch polity uh, of the UK or England specifically and the long game I think w- that is very constructive for the smaller parties is that they can t- continue to think about Wales as a democracy within its own right And the longer we do that, the more chance that you get those native voices which are distinct from the two large parties of England, there's more room for those parties to grow over time. And it's not unlikely that we have an expanded Senedd in the future. It's not unlikely that we would have a a more representative, proportionally representative voting system in the future. So I think that there is light at the end of the tunnel for the smaller parties if they continue to contribute to the public sphere in Wales and they can sustain that despite their limited resources it's just a very long tunnel. If we turn to the the policy episode what did we make of that Kerry what did you think of some of the ideas that were put out by our policy bods? Well I think the two episodes we had there was a there was a couple of synergies and one of the things I liked uh, Elsa saying was was how the civic society is widening and i think getting people interested 
in these issues of the state and wanting to improve things and do more, not just looking to the party machines to, to deliver. I think that was a link between the two. And I think it was really nice to see some of the voices we had in the first one. People who can really contribute, you know, the talent Richard's uh, alluded to in this show. I think that talent is out there in Welsh civic society. And getting to hear more of these people more regularly and having them contribute is is a real plus. I think what they were saying was really, really interesting. I th- as I said, I think some of the some of the policy areas I expected to feature a lot more haven't come out as much as what I expected. So I mentioned the environment and climate change it didn't really feature as what we were expecting. I don't think education did. These are the kind of areas I'm interested in. But I think we're in a, a time at the moment where other issues just do dominate so much we can't get away from covid we can't get away from brexit as much as we want to try the economic fallout from covid so i'm not surprised that those were at the fore of what we talked about and of course we've talked about indie already in this particular pod but you know those those are the big topics which are going to come out next year matt were you about to say you just waggled your pen yeah, in a way that kind of there's indicates one you. there's one thing i want to say that having re-listened to some of the episodes that really stuck with me, which is something that Nisreen said when we asked about radicalism, is that what we need to really start doing is working out radical policies that work for Wales, that have been created in Wales for Wales, as opposed to just taking random ideas off the shelf and saying this will work for Wales. This is radical that has worked elsewhere. It will work here. It's, I think, fundamentally important to the development of Wales as a polity and as a society that we start thinking of our own ideas and, and what works for us, not necessarily what has worked elsewhere. The policy episode was really illuminating. I thought it was absolutely fantastic to hear such a group of really intelligent, policy wonky people who really knew their stuff and really cared. And you know, when you, when you speak to people like that, you just feel so much hope. I, I think a really good politician and a really good set of politicians would find a way of framing those debates so it doesn't become a tit-for-tat political argument at an election. Whoever grasps the public mood on what they feel is necessary after Brexit, I think, uh, after COVID and Brexit, is, is who will come out the best. So as you just, you just mentioned Brexit more times in one sentence than a lot of people did in the entire podcast, um, uh, I, think, I, think we should, I think we should mention that because, um, again, this is something that we live in a very fast-changing world right now. And one of the things that has changed the fastest is the situation with Brexit. Because when we first started, there was generally a feeling like, oh, yeah, we're in the transition phase. We worried about potential outcomes after that, but we don't really know anything. And there's COVID-19 in the, in the meantime. Just in this last week, the situation with Brexit has really come back on the radar. This is exactly the kind of thing that matters in a Welsh context. What we've seen is two different issues come together. One, the continuing failure of talks between the UK government's representative and the European Union's representative uh, to try and move towards some kind of post-transition phase deal. That looks like it's going nowhere right now. And on top of that, you also have the UK government rapidly moving to control more of the functions that uh, the Welsh Assembly, or I've got a down a pint now, (laughs) control more of the functions that the Senedd and the Scottish Parliament and the Northern Irish Assembly have control over. And we've seen this particularly today, uh, Peter Foster um, and a number of other um, journalistic colleagues in the FT and elsewhere 
have reported that the UK government is going to bring in tighter controls over what they're calling the UK internal market, which will essentially give them the powers to unilaterally agree away uh, protections, particularly in the agri-food industries, in the in the course of chasing trade deals, um, notably with the United States, with the Welsh Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly, although actually not Northern Ireland in this case because they're uh, carved out in the um, yeah the Northern Ireland Protocol, they are not going to have any input. They're, they're not party uh, as as partners to those trade negotiations, and they won't be able to protect to act within their own devolved fields. So the UK government is pursuing this unilateralist approach in trade, and we have no reason to doubt that they want, want, will want to do more in other policy areas. We've already seen this, particularly with Boris Johnson, whether it's in error or not, talking about overriding the Welsh devolution settlement to build road infrastructure in Wales, that they have no legal right to do so. Well, say that, of course they have legal right to do so because parliamentary sovereignty, but it would ride roughshod over the devolution settlements as we currently understand them. Weirdly, that might be slightly popular with a certain uh, part of the electorate in Wales, particularly if you live in a black and amber-ish looking town or city uh, in the southeast corner, or frankly, somewhere off the A55, where you're used to getting trucks uh, zooming past your houses on a regular basis or um, parked up churning out fumes. But it won't play well in Scotland. That is going to be a massive wedge issue with the Scottish government, um, and we're likely to see a very strong SNP Scottish government after the next election if the polls are uh, continuing along the path that they are right now. And that pushes us closer to either a an, an indie ref along the lines of what we saw in 2014 or something that resembles the Catalan independence protest of just a few years ago. There's mass popular support for independence, but the central federal government is refusing to allow um, a legally binding um, plebiscite on that issue. And then you have more division in Scotland. Frankly, it almost at that point, you're looking at, you know, no, uh, you've passed the point of no return for the union in Scotland. And then that raises the question, what happens in Wales? And I think that then looping back really adds a lot of fuel to the fire of talk of greater autonomy for Wales, uh, whether you phrase that in terms of independence or just more autonomy from the, um, what would then be the English state. Uh, I think that's, that is a potential, it's one of these kind of uh, sliding doors moments where if a certain thing happens, you can see two very clear different outcomes. The conversations that we need to have in Wales are about how prepared are we for those outcomes and what would we as individuals, but also as a political society and the political parties themselves, what would they do in that circumstance? Um, and and uh, I don't see enough of that conversation happening right now. For the people who are struggling with this as an idea, struggling with the idea that Wales would be overruled, especially in an area of devolved competency, you know, to put it simply, whilst Wales remains part of a UK in which the centralised parliament is ultimately sovereign, we will never know for certain that what we decide is the final decision in next year's election. You could very easily create a narrative in which a Welsh Conservative government next year is a vote of a vote of no confidence in devolution. Yeah, so this is the parallel. In Scotland, the, the Scottish Parliament election next year is a, a proxy referendum on, uh, on independence. In Wales, 
it almost looks like it's going in the direction where it's a proxy referendum on devolution for those people who are minded to be appreciative of the benefits of autonomy or semi-autonomy for Wales. If that election is won by forces that oppose devolution, that will cause a lot of realignment in Wales. So what we like to do at the end of most of our pods is ask our panellists what they think would be a, a good night in next year's Senate elections. So what we're going to do tonight, because we're going to put a little bit of pressure on ourselves, is ask what we think will actually happen. I think we're going to see Labour as the largest party, Conservatives as the second largest, Plaid with some of the other parties all getting a seat, maybe two. And as you've put me on the spot, I'd like to think on one of those lists we'll get a Green candidate and uh, Wales will follow an awful lot of the rest of Europe by bringing a Green uh, voice into its uh, electorate not entirely not hugely different um i think that we're going to see a strong labor group returned uh, if things continue as they are right now that's most likely to be between 25 and 27 seats i think i have been persuaded over the course of <laughs> 10 episodes that kirsty williams is going to retain her seat even though in my heart i still think that that's <laughs> up for grabs I think that the Conservative support at the moment comes with a health warning. I can't see that being retained because the trajectory of enthusiasm for Boris Johnson, as I see it around me here in Wales, is on the way down. I actually think that Plaid and the Conservatives will have more or less the same number of seats. I don't know exactly how many that is, but I think they're going to be more or less the same. And I think that there will be a handful of uh, list seats for either... Uh, the Brexit party or whatever it's called by then and or abolish the Welsh Assembly party I think actually they they will probably get at least a seat each especially if they manage to bring someone with name recognition uh, onto the list um, as a result of that I think it'll be touch and go but if you were to ask me what is the most likely outcome this time uh, June next year I would say that we're likely to have a Labour-led administration with uh, Kirsty Williams back in uh, the education portfolio. Matt, go on then. So my prediction, I think that Labour will end up on pretty much exactly the same amount of seats as it has now. I think that the fact that Brexit is no longer a salient electoral issue will help Labour. If it comes back, that Brexit is actually a really net negative. I think that will help Labour. So I can see us holding the seats we lost in December. So yeah, I think that we'll end on around 29, 28 seats. I think absolute worst case scenario would be about 25, 26. And then I think that there will be, if we were to lose any of those seats, I think we'd lose them to the Tories. So I think that the Tories will be the second largest party, followed by Plaid with one Liberal Democrat and yes, a smattering of either whatever the Brexit party are called or abolish. And there we have it. Uh, we still all agree more or less on everything <laughs> after uh, 10 episodes or so of the podcast. So I, I think we're coming close to wrapping up this marathon review of our Senna 2021 series, which I have to say is a genuinely good listen. I say that I know that sounds, <laughs> that sounds a little bit uh, like someone really hawking their own product, but <laughs> I have been blown away by the people that we've spoken to because we started this podcast series 
not really knowing who we were going to uh, invite on the show to talk about their different parties or the different policies. And the people that we've had on, I think, have been fantastic. We've been all across Wales and we've had a whole new set of voices that a lot of people I've never heard speak before. So that's been great. Uh, a real kind of eye-opening experience or ear-opening. Uh, there is just one thing that I wanted to say. I know this has been a massive podcast, but we've been recording for what feels like an hour and a half now. Uh, and there's one thing that we haven't mentioned, which I really think we should, because it's you know, the kind of thing that we do. I should just say that... Um, I'm looking forward to having Mark Hooper on a show again in the future. <laughs> it has been generally great. And um, uh, I'm looking forward to the next series of podcasts talking about, no doubt, as equally interesting things. And we have a number of really interesting voices uh, coming up. I completely agree with you. Um, and hopefully we're all right. Uh, and by the time we come to do this again in uh, next year, we will have stopped saying Welsh Assembly. If you have managed to get <laughs> to this point of our Mammoth Review show, please take the opportunity to find us on Medium at Hereith Blog Cymru, to like and follow us on Facebook at Hereith Blog Cymru, and to follow us on Twitter at Hereith Blog. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with you soon. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.